And just to tell you where we are, we are in a short series that takes us to Easter. We're looking in John's Gospel at the events leading up to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So, two weeks ago, we saw a man named Lazarus, who Jesus loved dearly, that Jesus performed his most spectacular miracle, his most amazing miracle other than his own resurrection, in raising Lazarus from the dead. But that miracle, done literally right outside of Jerusalem in a town called Bethany, just a short three kilometers from Jerusalem, this miracle Jesus knew once he did that, that he had essentially guaranteed that the religious leaders would kill him. You see, the religious leaders, they didn't like Jesus because he was destroying the thing that they loved most. The religious leaders, they had been given power and, and authority and, and wealth by the Romans on the condition that they keep the peace. So the religious leaders at all costs want to keep the peace. But you see, the, the wealth, the authority, the power they had been given as religious leaders, it was never intended to come from Rome. It was intended to come from God Almighty. And they had rejected God for a worldly system. And Jesus was threatening to bring instability, to bring division, to bring chaos to the peace that they had manufactured and that they had made with Rome. So people are gathering every day at the, at the temple area, and here's what they're wondering. Is he going to come? Everybody's heard about this miracle. Everybody's talking about it, and they're wondering, will Jesus actually show up for Passover? Is he going to come? Will he make it here? And what we're going to see today is in the city of Jerusalem that during the Passover week, the Passion Week, it is growing by tens of thousands of people each day. I mentioned this before, but uh, Jerusalem was a city most likely of around 50,000, and it would grow to as large as a million or more people as Jewish people from all over the world flocked to Jerusalem. One historian said what we'll see Jesus do today, here's what he said. This move by Jesus is the most courageous in the history of the ancient world. What we're going to see Jesus do today takes a lot of courage because he knows he is riding in to a certain death. Yet Jesus is in full control. He knows he's riding into his death. He has the power to stop it, but he comes in as the hero in order to save the day. So today our passage is John chapter 12, verse 9 through 19. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. It'll be on the screen behind me, or you can look in your Bible. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. As I read this, there's a few things to notice, but one I want to highlight Notice the crowd. And I want us today, as we walk through this passage, we're going to do a lot of context and history. 
probably more context in history than normal, and you're going to be wondering, where are you going with this? We will have a place that we will land, and we'll see how this applies. But notice the crowd today, because that's where we would have been. If we had been there that day, we would have found ourselves among the crowd. And it's mentioned several times, so let's hear the word of our Lord. Verse 9. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, Praise be to God. You may be seated. God, we thank you for your word. Your word which declares that all men are like grass and all our glory is like the flowers of the field. But your word stands forever, Lord. And may this be the word that is faithfully preached today. Unless you speak, we recognize nothing of any eternal significance will be spoken here today. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, we start in verse 9, and we see a large crowd, and they're going to Jesus, but they're going to him for a reason. They have heard that he has raised Lazarus from the dead. It's this miracle that is causing the crowds to clamor, because they've heard this, and they've heard also that the religious leaders have determined to put Jesus to death. Now, because the crowds are going out to this, the chief priest, two weeks ago, we heard them say this, it's better that one man die for the nation. But you know, sin always grows. That's what sin wants to do. Sin wants to start very small in your life and grow bigger, and it starts with one death, but now they make a plan to kill Lazarus to get rid of the evidence that Jesus has raised this man from the dead. And they tell us the reason many are believing that Jesus is the Messiah on account of Lazarus' resurrection, that this man has ultimate authority over sin. That's what the raising of Lazarus shows, is Jesus 
ultimate authority over the power of sin. Why do we die? Our bodies age, and our bodies grow in worse condition because sin has come into the world, and all of creation groans. All of creation feels the impact of sin, and our bodies do as well, and ultimately these bodies will die. And Jesus says, I've got power over that sin that takes your body. And he raises Lazarus from the dead here. Now in verse 12, it's going to mention that he's coming into Jerusalem. A a little bit about Jerusalem. It's a a city we hear often in the Bible. It's the most talked about, most recognized, most famous city in the Bible. Yet we never really take any time to look at what is unique about this city. Because it is a unique place. If you go back to the book of Joshua, God's people, the Israelites, these 12 tribes, they were given all of what we call the Holy Land, the, the, the Promised Land, the land of Israel. They were given this land, and when they came in, each tribe was to take a piece of land. Yet they didn't fully take the land. And there was not a capital for the nation. Under King Saul, Shiloh would be a capital. Gibeah would also be a capital under King Saul. Yet David, he would establish a kingdom, a capital, in a city that was already occupied. It was called the Jeju, it was the Jesubite city. And this city was in a unique place. Jerusalem, called Jezu at this time, nobody had been able to take this city. It was on the border of the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah. So it was not in one nation's land. It was on a border city, a border there. And it was a city on a mountain called Mount Moriah. And this is important to realize. If you're going to conquer a city and it's on a mountain, That means you've got to fight upward to conquer the city. And if there's walls around it, it's very, very difficult to conquer that city. Jerusalem had a water source coming into it. So if enemies surrounded the city, you could withstand for quite a long time. You you could withhold. So around Jerusalem, it's surrounded by other mountains. Actually, Jerusalem is the lowest mountain. It's in the middle. And all the mountains around it are taller. What that means is if you're in Jerusalem, you can look out and see the mountains beside you, and they're higher, and you could see an enemy coming. So this was a very difficult city to take. Yet King David wanted to establish a capital for Israel. So him and his men snuck in through the waterways, and they captured this city called Jerusalem. Now, the highest mountain, the highest mountain surrounding Jerusalem was to the east, and it's called the Mount of Olives. Even today, if you were to travel to Jerusalem, I guarantee you there's a place you would go because no one travels to Jerusalem without going to the top of the Mount of Olives where you can see the entire city. 
You can see Jerusalem all from there, from the Mount of Olives. So it's a, it's a unique place, and it had been predicted in the Old Testament that Messiah would come through the east, come from the east, through the desert to Jerusalem. Now, the first time the Mount of Olives is mentioned in the Bible, again, all this is hopefully going to come together, and you're going to see why we're putting these pieces here, was when King David left Jerusalem. King David in the Old Testament, his son rebelled against him, took over the kingdom from his father, kicked his father out, and King David left over the Mount of Olives weeping and crying and mourning. And that's the first imagery we get of the Mount of Olives, is of a king being kicked out of the city and having to leave. Today, what we see is the king that comes from King David coming into the city through the Mount of Olives. He's going to ascend and land here, and it's called the Mount of Olives for a very obvious reason. It's covered in olive trees. You see, olive oil in the ancient world was essential. You used it for a lot of reasons. One of the primary reasons they used olive oil was for burning lights. And you would burn those lights in the temple. So that olive oil was used in the temple there. And here, Jesus comes in on a day that we call Palm Sunday. That's our name for it. It wasn't called Palm Sunday in the Old Testament, but it's a very significant day. Now, two weeks ago, I gave you the seven Jewish holy days that are in the Bible. You may remember the first of those was called Passover. Passover takes place on the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan. But in Exodus, it says five days before that, they were to take a lamb, bring the lamb into their home, and for five days they would inspect the lamb to make sure it had no blemish before it was sacrificed for the sin of each family. Before it was sacrificed for the family, and the blood painted over the door in the book of Exodus where they could go to freedom. So on Sunday, on Palm Sunday, it would have been the 10th day of Nisan. Now, why is that important? The Jewish people, they called this Lamb Selection Day. It was the day that you would pick a lamb, bring the lamb into your home, and for five days you would inspect that lamb, and then on Passover you would sacrifice that lamb for the family. Every faithful Jewish person did this every single year. So Lamb Selection Day is a very, very, very important day, and that's the day that Jesus rides in. In verse 12 it says, The large crowd had come to the feast, so they've gathered on Lamb Selection Day to see what Jesus will do. To select their lamb, and everybody's talking. They've heard that Jesus was coming. That's the gossip. Everybody's wondering, will he actually show up? Will he come into the city? That's, that's the question. And these crowds are watching. And in verse 13, it says they took palm branches. Now, a little bit about these crowds that are gathered. I want you to, to feel what they would feel a little bit. These are heavily oppressed people. 
These are people that are living under extreme oppression. They're oppressed by the Romans, a government that rules over them and taxes them relentlessly. And Rome was a very cruel master. Rome did some good things for Israel. They built waterways to bring waters and water into the cities called aqueducts. They would build roads where you could travel easily. But if you got out of line, if you did something you weren't supposed to, Rome was cruel and ruthless and would bring death and chaos and destruction. So they live heavily under Roman taxes. Some people have estimated that the Israelites during Jesus' time were taxed as much as 70 to 80% of their income between all the taxes they paid. So realize, heavily oppressed people, they're oppressed by the religious system. The religious leaders put heavy burdens on them. They're oppressed by the religious leaders themselves. So this is an oppressed people, and they are waving palm branches. Now, we're used to this image for Palm Sunday of palm branches. But for a Jewish person, it had come to hold heavy meaning. If you took a coin that was used in Israel, on one side of it was palm branches. Because palm branches had become a symbol of freedom. Freedom from the oppressor. Freedom from the one who is going to uh, oppress. And it was uh, a symbol of peace and love and contentment. And the palm branches were used at a different Jewish holy day. Do you remember I said there were seven Jewish holy days? The first one is Passover. That's when Jesus came, was at Passover. But number seven, the seventh of them is called Tabernacle. And at Tabernacle, they would have gone six months without rain. And if God doesn't send the rain, it's going to be destruction for the nation. No food, no crops. Bring the rain, God. We need rain, God. So what they would do is they would gather at Tabernacle and they would wave palm branches in their tents. And it made a sound like rain. Have you ever heard a palm branch wave? It can sort of sound like rain beating against a tent. So they would wave these palm branches saying, God, send rain. God, we need rain. God, we need freedom because we can't live without it. So it was a celebration in the fall of the year. But here's what's interesting. When Jesus comes into town, they celebrate like it is tabernacle in the spring of the year. That would be like for us if we celebrated Christmas. If we celebrate it at this time of year, that would seem rather out of place. It would feel peculiar. It, it wouldn't make sense. But that's what they're doing. And Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, they waved palm branches. And here's what they're doing. They're waving these palm branches. So realize the picture of the, of the holy days, the last three refer to Jesus' second coming. And they're celebrating like it's the second coming. Like Jesus will come back when he returns. But they miss the first coming. They're wanting Jesus to do something that he has not come to do. These crowds are excited for Jesus. But what they want from Jesus is different. 
than what he's come to bring. So they're waving these palm branches and they're shouting this, Hosanna. Hosanna literally means help us, save us. As Jesus rides into town, he's coming in and they're yelling, help us, save us. We're oppressed. We're beaten down. We need somebody to come to the rescue. You come and help us. And in verse 14, it says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Now, we often overlook the significance of Jesus riding on a donkey. And oftentimes, we even have a, a misunderstanding of, 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 of the weight of this. Realize this, the only people in ancient Israel that would ride a donkey is somebody who was extremely wealthy. You had to have a lot of wealth to ride a donkey. It wasn't something a poor person was able to do. So for us, a lot of our imagery, I don't want to mess up imagery, but may a little bit here. When you think of Christmas, our image is of Joseph and Mary coming to Bethlehem. And what's Mary riding? A donkey. The Bible never says she rode a donkey. In fact, culturally speaking, historically speaking, I think it's unlikely she rode a donkey because you had to have wealth to ride a donkey. And on the eighth day, when Jesus was dedicated at the temple, they didn't give the sacrifice of a wealthy person. They gave the sacrifice of someone in poverty, a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. If Jesus' parents had had wealth, they would have offered a different sacrifice. So it's unlikely that Mary had the luxury of riding a donkey into town. But here comes Jesus riding a donkey. We're told in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 21, verse 1, it says, as he drew, this is the same narrative, just a little different information. When he drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage. Now, Jesus, I mentioned two weeks ago, he's staying in this town called Bethany. Now he comes to Bethpage, and he, he's a kilometer from Jerusalem. I mean, he's like right up to Jerusalem. He's walked over 180 kilometers to get here, over mountains, over rugged terrain, and it's now for the last kilometer that he goes, I'm going to ride a donkey. Why is that? Why does he start at Bethpage? Well, I think I've got a map we can show you here maybe um, that, that'll give you a picture of the route Jesus took. He would have started in Bethany walking. And when he came to the place called Bethpage, it's a kilometer outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Now, why is that significant? The Jewish people had determined how far you could walk on a Sabbath day. In fact, where I used to live, there was a synagogue near my house. And near that synagogue, they had put strings on the poles saying, this is as far as you can walk on Sabbath. If you walk outside of this, you've gone too far. And they had done that in Jerusalem. So if you walked past Bethpage on a Sabbath day, you'd gone too far. So Bethpage is what we would call a Sabbath day's journey. Now, why is that significant? It's not Sabbath, but here's what it is. Bethpage will be considered the start of Jerusalem. That's where you could enter into Jerusalem. So Jesus, as he approaches and comes to what would be considered Jerusalem, that's where he gets on a donkey and begins to ride into the city. 
And look at what the people cry out. Here comes Jesus riding on a donkey. Now listen, a king coming into a city, he would enter one of two ways. He would enter on a donkey. And here's what a donkey meant. I come to bring peace. I'm not a king coming to bring war. I'm bringing peace. Or the king would enter on a horse. Quite typically, a white horse. And if he rode the white horse in, here's what that meant. I'm bringing war. I'm bringing destruction. That's why I've come. Jesus' second coming, where you get imagery of him riding a white horse. This first coming, he comes into the city of Jerusalem to bring peace. He rides a donkey into the city. And here's what they cry out from Zechariah 9.9, John 12, verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey. In Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous, and hear this, having salvation is he who is humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He brings salvation. They're crying, save us. But their imagery, what they want saving from is this, the oppressors. Save us from Rome. Save us from the taxes. Save us from the heavy religious burdens. Save us from that. And Jesus says, I'm coming to save you from the biggest problem you have. That is your own sinful heart, the sin in your life, the sin that brings guilt, the sin that brings shame, the sin that brings great fear, fear of God. Why do people fear God? Because we know we're sinful and we're afraid. He's coming to deal with all of those things as he rides into the city. Now, the city of Jerusalem, in ancient world, again, this is a lot of history and context, but I, what, what I want to do is walk us in. Let us feel what the crowds felt. Let us sense what's happening as he comes in that week. There were eight gates in the city of Jerusalem. And we know that there's a prediction that he would come from the east. So there's the eastern gate. The eastern gate is also called the beautiful gate or the golden gate. That's the gate a king would enter into Jerusalem. Okay, a king would enter, a triumphal king would come in through the golden gate into the city. In fact, when the Muslim ruler named Suleiman, he's called Suleiman the Great in the 16th century, he took over Jerusalem. And do you know one of the first things he did? He totally walled off the eastern gate and made it impossible to enter because he had heard that there was a savior of the Jewish people that would come through that eastern gate. And then outside the eastern gate, he had bodies buried and made it a graveyard because he knew no Jewish person would walk through a graveyard. He was doing all humanly he possible he could to stop the prophecy. But yet, here comes Jesus. He's going to enter from the east. He comes down the Mount of Olives. He's going to go up through the Kidron Valley. Yet there's another gate right beside the eastern gate. That gate's name is the Sheep Gate. Now, it doesn't take 
too much thought to figure out what happened at the sheep gate. That's where the sheep entered into the city. The sheep would come in through there and there was a market right there where on lamb selection day, five days before Passover, you would show up, you and your family, and you would be a part of that crowd and you would go buy a lamb. There in the city of Jerusalem. You would go in through the sheep gate to go buy a sheep. And you would take it into your home or wherever you're staying. And for five days, you would look at that sheep and make sure that sheep was spotless and that that sheep had no blemishes. And then after five days of that sheep being in your home, that sheep would be sacrificed, killed. Its blood would be spilled. You would cook and eat that sheep. You would eat the lamb. And here comes Jesus called the Lamb of God. Jesus, the Lamb of God, coming into Jerusalem to save the world from their sins, to bring salvation. We don't know exactly which gate he entered. But I wouldn't be surprised. In fact, I think he may have entered right through that sheep gate going, I'm the Lamb of God. You're coming through this gate to go and buy a sheep, to go buy a lamb. Pick me. I'm the all-sufficient lamb. You don't need to buy these lambs anymore. I'm it. And Jesus would ride in Jerusalem. And if you read the narratives of the last week of his life, he would be inspected by the Sadducees, by the Pharisees, by the Herodians, by the religious leaders, by the scribes, and they would ask him questions, seeking to trip him up, seeking to find a blemish, but they never could. They were always amazed at how he answered every single question. Jesus would be inspected for five days, just like a family would take a lamb into their home and inspect that lamb for five days to say, is this lamb spotless? So Jesus, he comes riding into the city. Get the imagery. He's riding in. People are waving palm branches saying, save us. Save us from Rome. Save us from the taxes. Save us from the religious oppression. Save us. And Jesus rides in through the sheep gate going, I'm not come to save you from those things. I've come to deal with the greatest problem humanity has ever had. The fact that we are separated from a holy God because sin has entered into the world. I'm coming to deal with sin. I'm coming to fight evil. This is the greatest cosmic showdown ever. Jesus rides in to face evil, to face Satan, and he will face him on a cross. He'll face him as the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world, riding in here. Now the crowds, what's amazing, he mentions the crowds over and over again. Look at their reaction to Jesus. They're excited. They're celebrating. Here he comes, the Messiah. He raised Lazarus. He's coming to save us. He's going to start an army. If someone in our army dies, he can raise them from the dead too. 
He's going to get rid of Rome. He's going to get rid of the oppressors. He's going to get rid of taxes. He's going to get rid of all these things that we hate. I've often wondered, how did these crowds in five days go from save us? We're so glad you're here. Welcome. We're celebrating. And five days later, they're shouting crucify. They start off shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, and five days later they're going, crucify, crucify. Two radically different reactions. Well, some have said maybe with millions of people, the crowds were different. That's possible. But I don't know if that's sufficient. I think that they came to realize that Jesus was not bringing the salvation they wanted. That what they hoped Jesus would bring wasn't what he brought. That they were wanting something different. They were wanting freedom from the government. They were wanting economic freedom. They were wanting freedom from disease. They were wanting freedom from difficult people. They wanted him to fix everything except this. And this is the last thing that most everybody wants Jesus to fix themselves. Jesus came to deal with your sin he came to deal with my sin. He came to save us, to transform us, to redeem us, and they didn't want that. Listen to this quote by J.I. Packer. I think it'll be on the screen. It reads, Everyone who lined the streets of Jerusalem that day so long ago had a different reason for waving those palms. Some were political activists, they heard that Jesus had supernatural power and they wanted him to use it to free Israel from Roman rule. Others had loved ones who were sick and dying. They waved palm branches, hoping for physical healing. Some were onlookers merely, looking for something to do, while others were genuine followers who wished Jesus would establish himself as an earthly king. Jesus was the only one in the parade who knew why he was going to Jerusalem to die. He had a mission while everyone else had an agenda. Church, know this. We all look to Jesus hoping for him to bring something, hoping for him to deliver something. There's something we want him to deal with and do, to deal with our, our pain, our, our, our suffering, our, our hardship. And we see throughout Scripture's examples, we see Paul, the Apostle Paul, and he goes, hey, remove the thorn from my flesh. It never happened. We see when Jesus went into the city of Nazareth right after his Baptism and his ministry launched. They tried to kill him because he read a scripture and he stopped at a place where they knew that he was speaking about them and they wanted to kill him. He wasn't what they wanted. Even John the Baptist, when John the Baptist is in prison, he sends his followers to Jesus and says, Hey, are you really the one who is to come? And Jesus answers him, quoting from Isaiah. And Jesus' quote from Isaiah speaks of all these things Messiah will do, but then he stops mid-sentence in Isaiah. 
Isaiah says that he will come and he will release the captives. Jesus doesn't say that to John. This is as if Jesus is telling John, you're not getting out of prison. The thing you want me to do, that's not what I've come here to do. So often the things that we desire from Jesus aren't what he's come here to do. You see, we, we look at this crowd and we go, how, how can the crowd start worshiping Jesus? Hosanna, and then they go crucify Jesus. But let me tell you, there are so many people in our world today that do the exact thing. Save us, Jesus. Save me. Come help me, Jesus. And Jesus comes and says, I'm going to deal with your greatest problem, your rebellion against God. I'm going to make you right with God. I'm going to put you in the right relationship. And we go, hey, that's not what I really want. Jesus, I want you to give me a better job. I want you to save me from that difficult boss. Jesus, I want you to remove that neighbor that's hard. Jesus, I, I, I want you to save me from this sickness that I've had for a long time. Jesus, I want you to heal my mother. Jesus, I want you to end taxes. I want you to end the oppression. Jesus, I want you to save my child who's rebellious and gone wayward. Jesus, here's what I want you to do. And we all look at Jesus going, here's what I want. And Jesus goes, I've come to save you from your sin to deal with the greatest problem you have. And so often when we look to Jesus to do something he didn't come to do, some have rebelled. Some have rejected Jesus over this. I was talking with a young man who I discipled for several years and he now lives in the Middle East serving there. And he was telling me about a family member who was going through a divorce. This couple, they had served in the Middle East in one of the most difficult countries on earth, sharing the gospel. Their team was hard. The situation was hard. And when Jesus didn't do what they wanted him to do, they walked away from their faith. They walked away from each other, ended their marriage, and said, we no longer believe in Jesus. You see, when we look for Jesus to do something that he did not come to do, we can end disappointed and go, Jesus, why haven't you done what I want? And Jesus says, I've come to deal with the greatest problem you've ever had. So church, let's don't turn. Let's don't flip. Let's don't reject Christ when he doesn't make your life easier. Let's don't reject Christ when we go, Jesus, why haven't you helped my child? Jesus, why did you allow my child to die? Jesus, why haven't you brought a husband or, or, or a wife yet? Jesus, why haven't you changed my job? Jesus, whatever it is that we're looking, if you love me, Jesus, you would do this. He's saying, no, I've saved you from your sin. That's why I came. You see, here on earth, we're still going to have pain and suffering. 
God will not let you be so comfortable here on this earth that you go, I'm home. This is not our home. You'll never be comfortable here fully. And we live in insanity when we try to make this world so comfortable that we feel at home because it will never be our home. Our home is with Him. He comes to offer forgiveness. He comes to say to you, you are my honored child. He comes to offer freedom from fear, the fear that can easily dominate, the fear that we go, oh, if I mess up, God's going to give me. No, he gives us freedom from that through his power and his authority. Jesus takes all the guilt, all the shame, all the fear upon the cross. Some of you here today, you are carrying a burden that you're not meant to carry. Some of you here are carrying a guilt that Jesus has forgiven you of, or he will forgive you of if you trust him. Some of you feel shame. Shame, and Jesus is saying, hey, I've taken that shame. You're my honored child. You are worthy to be my child. I've died for you. Some are dominated by this fear. Fear that God is out to get you, out to harm you. And he says, I love you to make you right with God. So church, this week as we, as we walk through the Passion Week, I pray that you'll take time to reflect. To reflect on our Savior who came not to fix all your worldly problems. Who came not to make your life necessarily easier. He came to give you himself, to bring you into his family, and to save you from your sin. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are a God who 2,000 years ago in a city called Jerusalem, you rode on a donkey coming in peace to being peace between humanity that is at war with God because of our sin. And you came to bring peace. Lord, may we receive that peace. May we trust in the finished work of the cross as we head there. May we not be like the crowds who shout, save us, save us. And then when you don't save us the way that we want to be saved, we shout, crucify, crucify. But Lord, the truth is that our sin, our rebellion, our dishonoring of you has shouted, crucify, because our sin demanded your death. So Lord, as we head into this week, may we head into it somberly, and yet may we rejoice the fact that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to shame. That fear has no grip on us because we've been saved by our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. May we walk in that reality. And Lord, if there's any here today who do not know the Savior Jesus, I ask your Holy Spirit to open their eyes to the truth and that they would trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.